0: Welcome to episode 27 of the Euro Financial Planner Now What podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Moore, and thank you for joining us today. One of the most important and overlooked aspects of financial planning is running your business well. We can be the best planners, but if we don't have the business skills, our success will be limited, even if you never want to actually run a business yourself one day. One aspect of business skills that gets a bad rap in a profession is sales. Today, I have Glenn Matson, a sales coach, And he shares insights into how we can incorporate sales into our practices. As someone who can feel uncomfortable with traditional sales techniques myself, this interview reminded me that sales is still an important skill that we need to master. But before we get to the podcast, I want to congratulate all of you who passed the CFP exam this week. It's a huge accomplishment, and I truly believe that our profession is better off because of you. If you passed and are listening to this podcast, I want to celebrate with you. Email me at hannah at guidingwealth.com with your name and address, because I have something that I want to send to you to congratulate you. We don't celebrate these milestones enough, and I want to do my part to change that. The email address again is hannah at guidingwealth.com. With that, let's jump right into this episode. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Glenn.
1: Thank you.
0: So just to start off, for people who don't know you, what do you do now and what's been your background to get you to where you are? (laughs)
1: <laughs> What's my background, right? What What gives me the credentials to say what I'm about to tell everybody? Um, I am a a the epiphany of a hair club for men trick. And for those of you who are not in, from New York where the hair club men is, is I started off as a client of Sandler for many years when I was younger. Quite honestly, through high school and through college, owning my own business. And it really helped me transform all the mental head trash that I had taught me about goal setting and belief systems, helped me understand how to manage my time, and really how to communicate with prospects. So I started off as, just like everybody else, um, I would suspect in high school, and went to work at some local community stores, and started my own business, and found that I enjoyed working more for myself, getting the results of my hard work into my own pocket through somebody else. And Hannah, what happened as I was growing up and developing my business, I found out that I had some, some serious limitations. I wanted everyone to like me. Um, I thought it was rude to talk about money. I had a tough time asking tough questions and that's not you know conducive to great business. So I really had some trials and tribulations that I had to work through. And I did some soul searching, found a company that, that was exceptionally good at it. I hired them and, and what happened over time was I became a student, which then I became a teacher for that company and sold my business and went on board to try to sell something that everyone really needs, but no one really wants to buy, which is sales training. And that's when I really found out I didn't know anything. (laughs) Right. Um,
0: So what type of businesses did you own?
1: um, Nothing glamorous, quite honestly, it started off as me doing odd jobs for people. And I started working for someone that had a painting company. And what we did was not necessarily the outsides, but we used to do what's called faux finishing nowadays. And, you know, we're talking 20 to 30 years ago, Where we would marbleize people's houses, we would put murals on their walls, we would put murals on your hardwood floors and polyurethane over them. And so, what I found out real fast is yeah, I can do the painting and the drawing and the artwork, but what I found was the person running the business, Hannah, was an artist that couldn't run a business. And I was better at running a business than I was at the artwork. So, I started selling small jobs, I started doing things on my own, and found that. If I hired two or three or four really top quality artists that love to draw, just could never get paid for it, I could find the business and pay them and make, you know, make a very good income, which which we did. And we were in a position that all the business that we got was word of mouth just because of how I handled the clients in between and during the the, you know, the actual um, artwork being done in the house. So it wasn't glamorous. It was a painter. I was a painter.
0: So you got into the sales training after that?
1: I did because I was a client of theirs and they helped me literally, um, if I had to put financial dollars on it, they helped me put a zero to my income um, when I was 21. So that's a big difference. And um, by putting a zero to my income, I found out that I was really good at running the business or as good as I could be. Uh, And I became really good at understanding people. I became really good at how to ask the right questions and how to sell and how to run a business and communicate with my team. So by me learning the things I wasn't good at and becoming and excelling at the things that I was naturally good at, it really helped me transform the business, which really made me a hardcore believer in our system and our process.
0: Well, I think that's what's so interesting about financial advisors. So many of them get in to help their clients and, you know, do good work and, you know, the financial planning side of it. But I've seen so many financial planners who are terrible business people. And I feel like that's exactly what you kind of address with sales and kind of that part maybe where advisors feel awkward.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you know within Sandler, there's 280 offices around the country. And you know, we're in 27 different countries and 19 different languages. So we we are by far the largest training organization in the world. And we excel, Hannah, in three key areas, which is sales, management, and leadership. But when I look back at our practice, um, most of my peers within Sandler are what we call generalists. They teach sales training to everybody. Um, I specifically only deal in the financial field. So all my clients are home offices or agencies or teams of top producers or The emerging advisor who's just got out of college, who's now entering into the business and is sitting there with their eyeballs the size of a basketball trying to figure out, you know, what did I commit myself to? And I love the business. I love helping people. But how do I overcome all my fears to get in front of people to help them? So I just found that your industry that you're in is a great place to help people because, unfortunately, they've been trained to sell the way people don't buy. They've been trained really how to do it wrong, which makes the onboarding, the learning and the development and within your field harder than it really has to be. And the third piece, which is you hit it right on the head, is you have some great salespeople, but no one's ever really taught them how to be a business owner. So there's there's multiple levels of gaps within the industry, and it's a phenomenal industry. It's it's I think it's the best industry to be in.
0: Just hitting on the topic that I hear so often is people say, you know, I'm just, I don't want to be in sales. So many college graduates I've heard say that. Could you address just that issue of like sales kind of being the dirty four letter word?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I just did a program last week for emerging advisors for a company. And one of the the top three fears that came out, one was the uncomfortability of talking about money and how it's rude to talk about money. The second was, is exactly what you just said. Sales is a dirty word. If I'm a salesperson, I'm a cigar-smoking, back-slapper, you know, um, polyester-wearing, full-of-brush individual. I mean, sales is, is unfortunately, you take a look at the animals. It's shark and pig and snake, and it's all bad connotations. But when you look at the evil side of sales, the cliche side of sales, that is someone who is pushy. They don't listen. They don't take no for an answer. They do what's best for them, not what's best for you. And, and that is the dirty side of it, for sure. But if you look at someone who you highly respect that's in a position of sales, um, they are usually extremely ethical. They are people who know is okay. So they're not pushy. They're just and they don't have to be arrogant. They're just assertive. There's a difference. They think fair is fair. If it's, and if it's fair, then just be honest. And if it doesn't work out, that's okay too. But if you, if you look at individuals who think sales is a dirty word, which a lot of them do when they first get started, it's because they've never had someone sit down with them, helping them understand that the bad side of sales, the bad people in sales are what creates that stigmatism. But the professionals in sales are actually incredibly respected. So, The exercise that we did, Hannah, was actually have them write down someone that they knew in sales that was that cliche, and then give me all the personal characteristics of that person. And then I asked them to give me someone that you respect highly within your field, and what personal characteristics do they have? And when you're out there selling and you're trying to sell, or you feel pressure when you're selling, are you feeling pressure because you feel more like the person that you don't like or the person that you respect? And more times than not almost 100% across the board, their fear is I'm acting, looking, and sounding like the person that's not the good one. So we jotted down very simple things. What do they sound like? What do they look like? How do they act? And how do we act in a manner? How do we sound in a manner? And how do we conduct ourselves in a manner that doesn't follow suit with those negative belief systems? And most of them, they don't want to be that person. So when you teach them how to sell with ethics and with the ability to have truth during the sales call, they really take to it quite well is because now they're learning how to sell the way they don't want to be perceived, right? They don't want to be perceived as that cigar smoking, polyester wearing person. So like, for instance, one of the things we'll teach someone is to make sure that you get upfront an agreement from the person you're talking to that no is okay. At the end of the meeting, if you don't want to move forward, no is okay. I'm going to say no, just like you may say no. And by having both of you agree that no is okay up front, it reduces an enormous amount of anxiety, an enormous amount of anxiety. Um, the other piece that we talked about with some people is when you go to your natural market, traditional, they'll tell you to go to your natural market, share with them what you do and try to sell them. Kind of makes sense with affiliation of trust. But the problem is all your friends know when you call them up and say, I want to come over and share with you what I'm doing, they all know what's happening. So we have found a process that when you call your friends, instead of saying, I'd like to come over and share with you what I do, it's more of a, I'm calling you up, assuming that you're okay. I'm assuming that all your financial situation is set up in your OK, what I would like to do is come over and share with you what I do in case you know of anyone I can help. And we have found when we take that brooch and follow our process that the average individual reduces the anxiety of themselves with their natural market. It reduces the anxiety of the natural market to have a conversation with you. And we'll get 30 percent of the people in your natural market conversation, 30 percent of them will turn around and be more than happy to either buy from you or refer you an additional 30%. So we'll typically get three times the results that a normal agency will get telling them to do it the traditional way. And the traditional way, not only makes the salesperson feel uncomfortable, but it also makes the natural market person feel uncomfortable. So it's a double whammy.
0: So can you talk more about like, what does a sales process look like?
1: Well, very traditional sales process and, and and you know this is how almost everybody has been taught in your industry to do that this way, is you go in and you do your approach talk. And your approach talk historically, if you look at most companies and they have their new org or their new producers memorize this, right? It's the key fundamentals of financial planning, it's the five pillars of, of financial success. It's the Three or four paragraphs about who you are, what the agency does, what makes the agency unique, and understanding financial planning of some sort. And it's typically either in a PowerPoint, it could be in a laminate, it could be in a story talking about a house or a bridge or all these different other acronyms. But at the end of the day, you show up and you talk for 10 or 15 minutes about your story. And then historically, they're taught to ask three or four engaging questions and then go right into either a fact finder or quick facts to gather data. And then Hannah, as you know, after you do your approach talk, get them comfortable, gather the data, you go back to the office to create some casework. And that's usually if you're new, that's when your manager goes with you after you've done the casework and the manager will then walk through what you have, what you're supposed to have in their perception, what your gap is, here's the products we think you should utilize and why, and then we try to close it to you. Now that's a very traditional process and, and it is a lot of pressure on both sides. And we think that that's backwards because after you've done all the work, you hear things like, that's an awful lot of money. I'm not sure you want to do this. I appreciate you sharing that with me. It's a ton of information. It's a lot to digest. Do you mind if you get back to me in three or four days? We get what we would consider stalls and objections. Now, we just teach people that to sell the way they buy. And unfortunately, going in and gathering data, doing casework, and going back and presenting the solutions is not how people buy. What you're doing is you're talking to the intellect of the individual, the buyer. And when you talk to the intellect, the intellect is not what makes a buying decision. Emotions is what makes buying decisions. It's trying to disturb someone although that gets them emotionally involved, you also have to realize that if you get me emotionally involved negatively, and if I get rid of you, I get rid of my emotions. It's called flight. So if you make me feel uncomfortable by trying to disturb me, if I get rid of you, I get rid of my feelings. So what we teach people is how to uncover through dialogue um, that the buyer will share with you their emotional financial pains. And pain is something that either you're living with right now or you want to get rid of in the future. And for younger generation, it's things like debt, for instance, or cash flow. In the middle generation, it could be cash flow and balancing two incomes to one income if they start a family and one of them decides to stay home. Or if you're a little older, it's how do we deal with retirement without crippling our ability to save for college? Or if we're going to be saving for college, how do we do that without crippling our ability to save for retirement? So When depending on your lot in life and where you are, the concerns that you have around your money doesn't go away. It just changes and you need to have an availability of understanding what those emotional drivers are. So the real fundamental key for your new uh, advisors is to understand a couple keys. One, people buy emotionally and they justify it intellectually. Stop trying to prove to somebody that you know what to do to solve their problems. What you need to figure out first is, A, do they believe they have a problem? And B, do they even want to fix those problems before you start recommending how to solve it?
0: I think that's great advice. So kind of shifting how that conversation starts out with prospects. Or if you're online, changing how you're writing Yes. to attract people.
1: Right. I mean, if you think about some of your friends, if your friend turns to you and says, gosh, you know, I just can't figure out my bills every month. Well, that's an intellectual statement. An emotional statement is it's completely frustrating at the end of every single month. I have to balance all my different bills and who's going to get paid and who's not. It's like a constantly juggling stuff. And the more I do this, I just feel like I can't get started in my life. That's more emotion than it is intellect. And people buy emotionally, but they justify it intellectually. So when we hear people talk like, ah, I need to have more cash flow or my debt seems to be pretty big or I don't even know how to get out of debt. Those statements, Hannah, are coming from someone's brain. They're not coming from their heart or their belly button. So unfortunately, what most of us are taught when you're brand new in the business, if there's a crack in the armor, you got to go after it. So if someone says to you, my gosh, cash flow's tough or I don't even have enough money to pay all my bills, that's coming from the head. What we've been taught, unfortunately, inside of agencies is, well, let me tell you how we can solve that. First, you're going to have to do a family budget. Then you're going to have to do that. Then you're going to have to do, we go right to solution mode. Well, I'm sure if you asked all your listeners, how many of you know that you should eat less? How many of you know you should exercise more? How many of you know that you feel tired every night and you need to go to bed more, right? Everyone knows it, but how many people take action on it? So problems, everyone is aware of. Pain Is commitment problems are intention they are intending to fix it when you're in pain you will fix it it's a big difference between the two
0: and so when you find somebody who has that pain point you speak to that pain or kind of what is what does that look like
1: well when we uncover those emotional drivers we have to ask some simple things about scope and significance and impact and some other what we call qualification questions to help the buyer understand, is this really an emotional thing or is this an intellectual thing? Because if it's intellectual, that's fine, but it's probably not big enough an issue to fix or to change your lifestyle or to change some of the things you're doing. So, for instance, most people who are in debt know they're in debt. They also know how to fix the debt, but they still put more money on their credit cards than they should every single month. So that's someone with intention. If, if you have debt and it's to the point where it's overwhelming and you're underwater and you feel handcuffed and you can't get to the next part of your life, you can't buy your new car, you can't move out of the house, you can't get that engagement, you can't get married, and you really want to get married, you will change your lifestyle to make sure you're not in debt anymore by saving. It's going to take you a while, but you can do it. So when we talk with and we teach people how to go out and have conversations with others about their finances, we have to teach them how to uncover what those emotional drivers are, not just to sell them something. That's not the key. The key is so that the buyer changes what they're currently doing for the better. And to change, we have to have more than just intention.
0: What's funny is, as I'm hearing you say all this, I can just like, all of this seems like it would apply to somebody to managing their boss or helping their boss kind of get more direction yeah. <laughs> for a firm or for all these things. So I think, you know, you're talking about sales, but I feel like this can be applied to so much more than that.
1: Well, it's, it's honestly, it's motivation 101. I and mean, if you take a look at yourself too, if you know, deep down inside, you need to ask for more referrals from your A clients, but you're bringing in good money right now through a different sourcing process. Well, you have intention of asking for referrals, but you really don't need to. But let's suppose you're in the process where you want to make an extra $100,000 next year, 100, 100, you know, $5,000, $10,000, 100 whatever the number is. But you also want to take every Friday off. Well, to do that, how you're doing your business right now won't generate enough flow for you to do that. So the question becomes, how bad do you really want to have your Fridays off? If you really want to have your Fridays off really bad, you're going to have to ask for referrals. So what's worse, not taking your Fridays off or the pain that you have to go through by asking for referrals? And so in life, when we look at things, which one's the lesser of pains or is one pain less than the pleasure you're going to get in another area? It's a seesaw. So if you have so much desire to take that day off, you will overcome your fears of, of asking for referrals to get to the pleasure, which is the days off. If you're at home right now and you're listening to this podcast and you know you should be dialing the telephone, you know you should be doing your market surveys, you know you should be talking to the people that you already know about what you do, but you're uncomfortable doing that. Well, one of two things is true. Either not having any money to pay your bills is less painful than talking to people you already know about what you do for referrals, whichever the one of those two things is less painful is the one you're probably going to lean towards. So if you have a mom and a dad or someone else that's helping you economically, you may find yourself saying, you know what, I know I should be getting referrals, but I won't do it because not having enough money to pay my bills is not that bad because I'll have help. So you are right on the fact that we're talking about communication and motivation, but it just happens we were talking about it in the world of sales.
0: Let's talk about this goal setting because I feel like whenever I've heard sales before, it's very much paired with what's your goal, how are you going to get there? I mean, would you say that that's the case?
1: Well, goal setting is goal – setting, goal setting helps you create a purpose behind the what – The what is what you have to do to get in front of enough people to help enough people and for you to make the income that you want. And it's a relatively easy mathematical ratio. How many, you know, what kind of behavior you have to do per source? How many sources do you need to do to get first appointments? How many firsts to get your closing meetings? How many closing meetings to get to the number of cases you need based on your average case size, how much you're gonna make. It's a very easy mathematical equation. We call it cookbooking is one of the fundamental things that most agencies don't do even though they say they do but when we go back to that hannah they still have to do the behavior and behavior is the only thing you can control so all goals need to be converted to behaviors but when it's time to do the behavior we still need to have that three degrees of a push we still need to have that tipping point that when we look at the telephone it's the size of chicago when we know it's time to ask for referrals and we have marbles in our mouth right we all know quite honestly, what we're supposed to do. But many of us don't have the courage to do it. So goal setting is what gives us that courage. It gives us that grit. It gives us that ability to face our fears and do what we're supposed to do, not what we want to do, which is don't do it. So goal setting really is about getting to that next level. And, and and when you look at the average person, I mean, it's some scary statistics out there, they'll tell you 86% of the people walking planet Earth have absolutely no goals. They get up, they go to work, they come home, they mow their lawn, they eat their food, they sit down and watch TV for a half an hour, 45 minutes, they go to bed again. That's the extent of their life. Now, then they'll tell you that roughly about 10% of the population have an idea, which means it's in their head, of what they want in life. Only 4%, less than 4% of the population actually have written goals. And this is even a scarier statistic, less than 1% of everyone walking planet Earth, less than 1% of the population actually have goals, have them written and have a plan. And they'll also tell you statistically that people who have goals versus people who do not have goals, the people who have goals earn nine times more than those that don't. Like I'm a goal setter. I understand it. I, I wasn't when it first got started, but I, I am now. I don't understand why everyone wouldn't have goals. We plan our vacations better than we plan our life. So really the first step is just setting these goals and writing them down and telling somebody. Yeah, yeah. And there's a whole process to it. But yes, you have to write down your goals. You have to have due dates. You have to have a plan of action. With that plan of action, you also have to have um, discipline, guts, and vitality because your goals have to be done every day. Goals are not something that you just write down and forget about. Your brain doesn't know the difference between make-believe and real. Um, I have a lot of people will do a, what's called a vision board, and a vision board is what do you want by the end of this year? And they go and you cut up, you know, magazines and you put it on a poster board and you, you feel like you're three years old. But... It really is a great exercise and have it in your office. And the one liner that I have everyone put on the bottom of their poster board is what you're doing right now, is it getting you closer or farther away from these pictures? And when you procrastinate and you're doing case design work and you're getting proposals together, you're preparing for a review. Yeah, you can tell yourself you're working. But the reality is, is that you're probably doing an avoidance technique so you don't have to prospect and you feel guilt free about it. So, you know, there's a lot to being successful, but it's really not that hard. You just got to do it.
0: When somebody's stuck in that spot of kind of they're procrastinating and they're just kind of doing all of the not, not that it's non-essential to do like the casework, but not that prospecting, the sales and the hard stuff, what, what's a way that they can get out of that rut?
1: Well, if they're procrastinating, they have to understand that procrastination is a form of avoidance techniques. And what they'll do is they'll justify it by saying, because most people who are procrastinators are either A, overachievers. So therefore they say it has to be perfect before I can do it. Um, And those are the people that will say they have to memorize their script before they make a phone call um, and, and, and other things. And the other people that have a tendency to procrastinate just have really have... Um, a massive avoidance to what they have to do, for instance, making the telephone call. So some people will tell them, go do all the things that you think you should do before you make the phone call. Sooner or later, you're going to run out of items. You're going to have to do the phone call. The other thing that creates avoidance techniques is not having complete conviction inside the technique in which you learned. Um, take, for instance, cold calling. Some people will say it's a very inefficient way of getting in front of people, and I don't discount it. But it is probably one of the best techniques to have you overcome the three fundamental fears that most new people have faster than anything else that's out there. Um, you got to remember, and as you know this, Hannah, everyone buys what you all sell. The question is, who are they going to buy it from? So you never should have the excuse of, I don't have anyone to talk to. The reality is you're choosing not to talk to people. So deal with the real problem, which is the choice. And to overcome that procrastination is usually why people do goals. You know, you need that two degrees of tipping point on why you're doing this. You need that little push of motivation when it's time that that says, don't do it, you can do it tomorrow. You need that little push of saying, no, do it, do it today.
0: I have uh, on my screen, my little sticky note, you know, my monitor only have about two of the three of those on there. But one of them says most people overestimate what they can do in one year and underestimate what they can do in 10 years. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I found in myself, especially when we start talking about these goals is I can see that big dream, but it's really hard to see how, you know, working tomorrow is going to affect that.
1: Yes. I mean, it, it's the old saying is you always bring twice as much clothes as you need and always bring half and half as much money as you needed right on your vacation. It's always the way same thing happens when you start a new business, right? You always earn half of what you hope for and you work twice as hard. So, when we look and talk with producers and they think they're going to come in and work 15 hours a week and make hundred grand, you know, that may be great. And you may see that as being part of someone else's team, but what you don't see is that producer that works four days a week, three days a week, and they're making their million, million plus. Those individuals worked 50, 60, 70 hours for years to build up their database, to build up their expertise, to build up their skill set, so they can take the time off. So I think there's a fair amount of newer people that want the results, but they don't want to pay the ferryman the fee that it takes to have those results. So you do have to put time in to get the results that you're looking for.
0: Talking to the young planner who's just getting started out on their own, and they you know just start their own RIA or going out on their you know with the BD or wherever they may be, eat what you kill type scenario. What advice would you have for them as they start out?
1: Well, I would s- relatively quickly is I would tell them they got to have a plan of action. The plan of action is one year, two years and three years. And it's going to be relatively detailed and it has to be detailed in the financial side in terms of the gross business, reoccurring revenue, new, you know, new clients. Are they coming from current clients, new clients? Where are going to source them from what your sales process look like, What's your average case size is some easy stuff on financials. I'd also have them take a look at the process of how they run their business and the process of systems. Most producers, when they get to a size where they're on their own and they have a staff person, they've got a good run rate of how to sell, at least in their style. And one of the things that they've never really been taught is how do you run a business? How do you have a business meeting with your staff? How do you have dashboards that can put everything that you need to onboard a new client. When you're doing underwriting, when you're doing and moving money over, when you're doing a financial plan, what are the sequential steps that need to be done so you don't keep it in your head and you can transfer it over to your team? So the first is I would tell you they gotta have a plan. Second is they gotta make sure that they have proper communication and that's internal and external and making sure that that runs correctly. Third thing is I would tell you they gotta make sure that they really have a handle on their sales process and the results of their sales process based on ratios. And very, very few people have that. They just sell it. they say something to the fact of, I'm a good salesperson, but they really don't know their ratios. They really don't know where their business comes from. They really even don't know what their best clients are. Um, and then the fourth step is understanding how time makes money and how time kills money. So those four things is what I would really make sure that I would have a brand new person, especially if they're going out on their own, take a look at, and and, and time is a big one. We call it, you know, um, on our side, it's called the trouble line. And the trouble line, Hannah, is there's two different things that we do every day. There's things that are what we call pay time activities, and there's things that we would consider that are called no pay time activities. And unfortunately, the less successful producers do more non-pay time activities than they do pay time. And the most successful people have a tendency to do very little. But what they do is almost all pay time activity and very little, no pay time. So I was sitting down with a million dollar producer yesterday and of the, you know, eight to nine hours, he works three days a week and still makes seven figures. Um, he will work seven of those 10 hours is simply either in front of a prospect or in front of a client servicing to get referrals or cross selling. His staff does everything else. Now, when he first got started, he did it all. Yet his junior, when we started talking about teaming, his junior is doing more no pay time, which is casework, returning emails, understanding product mixes, sitting down with wholesalers. Those are all important things, but it's not necessarily pay time activities. So most emerging producers will spend 80% of their time doing no pay time. Which is the reason it takes them three to five years to actually have a good business and a good income. So you gotta manage your time, where you spend it, what you're doing during the right time. That trouble line, which is the difference between pay time and no pay time, for most people is one of the biggest, deadliest sins that they have in their practice. They just don't understand how to manage time.
0: What's encouraging about hearing you say this is that somebody who's working already in a firm is like, I just wanna get on my own. Talk to a number of people like that. It's like there's a lot that you can be doing right now to prepare for that time when you do
1: go on your own. Oh, very much so. Yes. Yep. I would tell most people that if they really want to get on their own, which is I find personally, I find incredibly exciting. um, Having the ability to walk a tightrope without any net below you, I think is personally, I think is the the ultimate thrill Um, is relying on no one but you to make it work or not work. And until you've been there, like you have, Hannah, it's hard to describe that to somebody. But it is a thrill that entrepreneurs just love and live on. They just love it. Now, when you talk to someone who's new, who's thinking about going out on their own, I would have them take a look at their stock with competencies. Competency of being a salesperson, competency of managing a business, competency of managing your staff. Um, also leadership skills and how to run an office, leadership skills and how to make sure you can pay bills and do budgets and et cetera. So I would sit down and if you wanted to leave, like, for instance, like you, Hannah, I left my mentor and you bought yours out. Well, I bought my book and left my my place. And but I also knew three years before I did it, I was going to do it. So I stockpiled my money. I learned how to do certain skills that I knew I was going to have to learn once I went on my own. But I did it in a slow transition so it didn't hit my pocketbook. Um, And when I made the move, like I'm sure you did and others, 90% of your clients were like, thank gosh, we were waiting for you to do this a long time ago. So instead of just doing an emotional decision, which is what most people do is they shoot and then they aim later. If you're gonna have the courage to take that risk and go on your own, plan it. Plan for what you want, plan for what's gonna happen. If it's not what you are hoping for in terms of plan B, be fully committed to it. And then once you make the decision to go, you gotta put blinders on and go and don't look back. So again, many people I think when they first get started, they get started too soon they get started because they didn't get themselves prepared financially or from a competency standpoint. But for those that did like yourself, I think it's the best thing in the world.
0: Yeah. I can definitely attest to that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work, right? It's a lot of, you know, you you get gray hair when you're in your twenties, but you know, that, that, that pressure for some, and they'll tell you this, you know, Harvard business review did a a study on entrepreneurs and they'll turn around and said that entrepreneurs, unlike others have a unique, um, trigger point that they can handle more stress than the average person so what you would find as stressful you may talk to your friends and they may say yeah i had a tough day today this is what i had to deal with and in your mind you're like my gosh that was between 8 and eight fifteen. you know that was nothing so what we deal with on a day-to-day basis changes constantly but it's also more than the average bear can handle that's why most people can't be good business owners it's a lot of fun. I mean, you, you can't, you, you, again, I don't think anyone that's on their own would, would, would change it for anybody. They love it. You
0: know? I just think that's a really good point because not everybody's wired to have their own business.
1: No, not at all. Everyone wants to be the boss, but very few people are good at it.
0: Yeah. And I feel like a lot of times it's held up as the ideal, but as an entrepreneur, like there is nothing better than you can have to have somebody who's an employee who is exactly the right fit
1: and where they should be. Oh, they're phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. But hard to get.
0: Yeah, very hard to get. But if you are that person, you will be invaluable.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. And if you're in the right place, um, then they're treated with with utmost respect and paid very well.
0: The third step that you had said in that process was a sales process. And I feel like I've heard that a lot, but I don't know like the meaty details of that. Can you give me more in-depth on that?
1: Sure. In in our world, when we look at sales again, you know, people are trained to go out and do the fact finder and then casework, case design, and try to sell it. And then after they sell, they get things like, that's fantastic, but I got to talk to my wife. Hey, that's awesome. I think it's great. Can you mind if you get back to me in three or four days? Or boy, that's an awful lot of money. Let me figure this thing out. Or you've given me some great information. Can you get back to me? And what they're really saying is, is that 87% of think it over, statistically proven, are no's. And so what we want to do is reduce the anxiety between yourself and a buyer, figure out what their emotional triggers are. Are they committed to solving those emotional triggers? And then from there, Hannah, we want to figure out three other things before we do any casework. The first is, in addition to any assets that you may be moving around, what kind of dollars do they see themselves putting towards solving these problems that they have? It has nothing to do with how much your product costs, but how much they see themselves putting towards it. Because if someone wants to put $100 of pay towards a $4 million problem, quite honestly, it's never going to get solved and they don't have a high commitment to solve it. So we, we have to make sure that we have budget taken care of. And then after budget is who besides themselves are going to be making the decision on this. We have to understand the decision making process. So in our world, we teach people how to set down the ground rules, how to make sure that you reduce all anxiety during a sales call so there's truth that happens, how to uncover the emotional drivers. And if there are emotional drivers, there is the buyer committed to solving them with or without you. And if they are, what do they see themselves putting towards the solution, which is, you know, financial dollars, among other things. And once you understand what the budget is, it's who besides the person you're talking to has to be involved in the decision making process to see if you and what you're going to recommend is the right thing. Now, once we have all the players, we have the dollars and we have the emotional drivers figured out, then I'm 100 percent okay. You going back, putting together a solution to fit their pain within their budget that you can show the decision makers which are who are the people that are gonna say yes and or no so when we teach people we don't get think it overs we don't get things like this is great can you call me back next week um, we do not get the traditional outcomes that some people get do we get more no's absolutely do we get a lot more yeses oh yeah we do but we don't get anything in between part of our selling process is we teach people really how to qualify the way people buy, which means that by the time you get to the edge of the diving board to say thumbs up or thumbs down if I want to buy it, you will bring less people to that diving board. You will end up with less proposals, but you're never going to do a proposal for business that's not going to stick.
0: What I think is so interesting about this is that you take something like sales, it's very, it feels like a very much like an art of like a, this like intangible skill set that somebody has, and you really can take it down into a science is what I'm hearing.
1: Well, I mean, yes, there you you use very specific words, which I, I smiled when you were talking, which is science and the arts. I think there's three things to to sales. Same two words you use. I definitely think there's a science to it. And that's just the what do you say? When do you say it? How do you say it? What's the flow to it? What's the architect to it, what are the strategy with the tactics? And you can learn those. But we also have the artwork. And, and the artwork is, is personality styles, understanding personality. That's why when people say sales is a dirty word, I really laugh because to be an exceptionally good salesperson, you are an amazing, you're amazingly intuitive of understanding people. You Most great salespeople have a knack if they don't have studies behind psychology and understanding people. It's not an easy thing to do. So the mu- the artwork is understanding how to move effortlessly through different personality styles, through different viewpoints, mindsets. But then we have the music. The music of selling is all the junk that's inside your head and my head and other people's head. So the music is all the records that we have, the belief systems that we have that play inside of our head that will make us successful and quite honestly, will not make us successful.
0: So as we kind of wrap up, do you have any final pieces of advice or thoughts um, for the young advisor or person looking to get into this profession?
1: Yeah, I would say if if someone getting in in the the position is to sit back and ask themselves, how bad do you want to have with this industry and with this market has a very unique position to give? You can earn more money than anyone you know. You can do it in a manner that is phenomenally accepting to people's schedules. But again, you gotta pay the piper for this. So I don't know very many people, and I have tons of those clients that are in their 30s, 31, 32, that are making seven figures. Um, And this business gives them that, but it also demands that you give it the respect that it deserves to earn that kind of income. It's just not for everybody so if someone's brand new in the business i would have them sit back and really figure out why they're in the business second thing i would have them figure out is what do they want out of the business and that's usually materialistic goods and then how bad do you want those and to do that what are you willing to give up are you willing to give up some free time are you willing to give up some socializing in the beginning of your career to get it back tenfold later So what are you willing to give up to get your goals is a big question that a lot of newer people are not willing to give up some social goals to get their financial and or family goals taken care of. And yes, can you have both? Yeah. But after you've had a successful business, so the brand new people, I tell you, have a plan on why you're doing it. Be committed to the process. Be a masterful student on the tactics and strategies that will make you successful and then lastly is do as much self-study as you can about what holds you back from being successful. Things like fear of rejection, controlling your emotions, guilt, worry, all the negative stuff that we have in between your ears, you can control, and you should learn how to control that so that you can use it as a motivator, not as unfortunately a demotivator, which it is for many people.
0: It's one of the things, and maybe you have thoughts on this, I remember being so insecure with client meetings and just how clients were perceiving me. And just one day I was just like, you know what? I'm going to decide that that is not how they're viewing me. And I'm yeah. going to decide that you know they're viewing me this way. And even if that's not true, like that's fine. But I had to make that switch in my head.
1: Oh, it's phenomenal. And, and by the way, most of it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You walk in and you say to yourself, oh, my gosh, they don't think that I know what I'm doing because I'm young. Well, when you're young and you feel like you're young and you feel you don't have any respect, all of a sudden you start to mumble, you get nervous, you get apprehensive, you have anxiety, you start to worry. And when you do that, your emotions get out of control. Your heart starts to beat faster. When you start to talk, you mumble maybe a little bit, you mispronounce words maybe a little bit. You lose your train of thought, which, by the way, gets you more emotionally involved, which then unfortunately proves to your client that you may not know what you're talking about. Right. So even if you do know it to be false because you fear it, you act in a manner that reinforces what your fear is. The belief of, you know, back in the day, Navajo Indians had a great story about two wolves, you have a black wolf and you have a white wolf. The black wolf feeds on despair, anger, fear, anxiety, guilt, worry, um, um, you know, frustrations, embarrassment. And your white wolf feeds on love, courage, trust, respect, risk taking, etc. And this older gentleman is trying to describe to the chief's son that we both have these wolves inside of us. And the little boy who's completely freaking out, right? He's feeling his his stomach. He's like, what do you mean? Where where do they live? Who wins? What's going on? And the elder turns to him and he goes, whoever you feed wins. And what it means is that we all have a black wolf and a white wolf inside of us. Shutting the wolf down is not going to happen when you first get started in the business. You're going to hear that black wolf. The question is, which one do you choose to listen to? whichever one you listen to will get bigger. It gets louder. It gets more powerful. So that if you have been someone who's been procrastinating, it's gonna get harder and harder and harder to break that procrastination because that black wolf is getting stronger and stronger. Every time you procrastinate, it gets bigger. Every time you choose not to procrastinate, you take power away from the black wolf and you give it to the white wolf. But it's not one decision. It won't change it. It takes many decisions To make that black wolf get thinner and thinner and thinner. And when it's getting thinner, it's because you're not feeding it. And if you're not feeding it, it can't get stronger. And the white wolf gets stronger and bigger and starts to beat up the black wolf. And that's really how you change your mindset. And you walked in one day and you just said, that's it. I'm done. No more black wolf in my head. And God bless you because it worked. For many people, when they say that, they'll believe it for one meeting and they won't believe it for the next meeting. So it's a constant day-to-day battle that they're going to have to willingly go into the fight with knowing they're going to have this battle every day inside their head. And it's okay because we all go through it. But successful people choose to talk to the white wolf more than the black wolf more often. And non-successful people listen to the black wolf and then they blame outside forces. They blame the economy. They blame the home office. They blame a product. They blame the, the stupid prospect. That's not what the problem is. The problem is the black wolf's too big.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of You're a Financial Planner, Now What? I hope you're able to think of sales in a different light and really develop those skills. As a reminder, if you pass the CFP exam this week, be sure to send me your name and mailing address. I'll talk with you again next week.